Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to another episode of Hands in Motion. We are so excited to be joined by Lynn Bassini to discuss the Guatemala Healing Hands Foundation. Lynn has a special place in her heart for Guatemala and started a foundation several years ago to help the people of this nation. Each year, she takes a team of surgeons and therapists to perform surgery and post-op care, as well as educate medical personnel in Guatemala. She shares with us how the foundation started, the mission of the organization, and what to expect if you were to join her for a mission trip in Guatemala. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Lynn. Hi, Lynn. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing very well. I'm very excited to talk to you. I've been enjoying your podcasts from the beginning, and I'm really thankful for the opportunity to share with you something that is truly very special for me. So thank you to both of you. You're absolutely welcome. And we greatly appreciate you spending the time with us this evening. So give us a little bit of background about just you personally, and then we'll jump into the Guatemala Healing Hands Foundation and how that developed. Sure. And I think it's important if, you know, I'm sorry to have to bring you back to history, but sometimes the history really makes you understand why Guatemala. So my grandparents were Egyptian and Syrian Jews that left Egypt in the early 1900s. And as they came to America, my father was born in Cuba. They were Jews just trying to find a place to settle. So they went to Cuba, they went to Panama, eventually they settled down in Guatemala in a town called Quesaltenango. Now, my father had a sixth grade elementary education. He was Education was not encouraged us much at that time, but it was important for families to to have a business. So my grandmother made sure my father went into a little bit of a retail store. And in one of his trips to the United States, met my mom, Mona. And eventually they went back to Guatemala. My mom died when I was five years old. And therefore, I grew up entirely by my Syrian, Egyptian, Guatemalan family. So I grew up in Guatemala from the very beginning of of my life to the time I went to the United States. My mother had been educated. So my father knew that at some point I was going to want to come to the United States. So once my mom died, I was brought up very much surrounded by the indigenous population. And I'm going to describe a little bit about Guatemala after I just kind of bring you to when I came to the United States. So it was very apparent for me early on that there was a huge contrast in Guatemala. We didn't have much. My father had a little retail store, but we had enough. So we had some money for food and shelter. So we had a lot. And the contrast was the amount of poverty around me, people that didn't even have a dollar a day. So very early, since the age of five or six, I was very sensitive to these huge cultural differences. And I was loved by the indigenous women that were really taking care of me while my father was in the store. So very early on, I had that sensitivity. So I went through my high school, through all my years in Guatemala, 
by in 1973, my dad said, okay, you could definitely go to college in the United States, but I want you to pick a career that you can make a living. So I knew early on, now English was not my native tongue, but I knew early on that I had to go to college and then I had to go support myself. Well, there I was at Penn and lo and behold, there's these wonderful little professions. Now this is 1973. There's no ASHT yet. There's these wonderful little professions of PT and OT. And somehow, you know, I, I took a left and I went into OT and not the right door that went into PT. And that's when my, my venture began to blend in my current culture in the United States with my prior life. And I think that's very significant because I think that without that background and all that those influences early on, it wouldn't have been so much part of my life. So what happens in 1977, I graduated from Penn. Now, what is 77 for you guys? What, what do you think it is? It's when ASHT <laughs> was founded. Can you believe? So I, was, I became a member of ASHT early on when people didn't even know what was going on. So very early on, I wanted to be a hand therapist. One of my professors, Josie Cohen, worked for Dr. Slavin, and I said, this is something I can do. So that's where it started. And from there, I got, I moved to New York. I got a master's in biomechanics and ergonomics from NYU. So I knew that hand therapy and orthopedic was going to be my key to my profession and perhaps my key to my Guatemala dream. So that brings me to 1977, 1982, graduating with my master's. And very early on, I launched a private practice. So I was in private practice for over 40 years. I had PTs and OTs, and I had referrals from hand surgeons. And it was the early years when private practice was very possible. So I built this wonderful practice when it was easier at that time that involved pediatrics and orthopedic and even ergonomics and expert witness, you name it. At that time, you could do a little bit of everything. I would say probably somewhere around the 90s, I started to think of ways that I could bring together my Guatemala life and my American life and try to make a, a difference in Guatemala. And I felt that really the key for me, the end to do it was going to be through hands. Okay. So I want you to stop for a minute. The idea is in my mind, but I want you to just imagine what Guatemala is like. Okay. So Guatemala now has a population of 16 million people. It was only 4 million when I grew up. 6 million of them are indigenous. 21 different Mayan communities. 40 to 50% of the population is indigenous. Half of the population is functionally illiterate. A half of the population, which means they barely may have three years of schooling. It is the lowest in Central America. Education through the sixth grade is compulsory, but not many children go to school. And the girls, perhaps fourth grade. 36% of the population goes to primary school, 12% goes to high school, and only 4% of the population in Guatemala is college educated. 
there are 130 million girls missing school. I mean, the numbers are the amount of poverty and lack of education is crazy. The average salary is maybe $4,000 a year. To many of them, that's a lot. To some, they're lucky if they have $1 or $2 a day. So you're seeing that there's this incredible issue with poverty, with lack of education, and compounded to all that is corruption and criminal injustice and all this insecurity about food, shelter, terrible dental decay. So this is the, this is the environment that we're dealing with. And my American world that is so different than that. So I would say it was probably 1994. I joined the American Association for Hand Surgery, AAHS. At that time, they were offering an award called the Vargas Award. And it was given to a therapist to travel with a surgeon to a you know, a country with barriers, one that did not have hand therapy. And uh, one before me went to Uganda. When it was my turn to apply, I went to Venezuela, which was perfect because Spanish is my native tongue. So we went to Puerto Rico, we went to Venezuela, and it is a teaching scholarship. So it was just wonderful opportunity for me to see what it's like to teach in Latin America. And I went with a wonderful surgeon, Dr. Freeland, that eventually nominated me to be on the board, the non-physician on the board. They always have one or two therapists on it. Once I was on the board, one of my tasks was to do the next Vargas Award. And to me, it was a no-brainer. I had to organize the trip. And that's when I said, oh, we're going to do it to Guatemala. So in 2004 was the first Vargas to Guatemala, and it was the first of the trips that eventually became trips of Guatemala Healing Hands. So in 2004, under the umbrella of the Vargas Association, I took 17 people with me. My vision at the time was I knew the hand surgeon, my family lives there. And I went to high school with a lot of these people. So to me, Guatemala was the easiest mission country that I could have gone to. And the only one that I could have actually made a big difference because I knew the culture. And I think knowing the culture and the people has been the major reason behind the success of our projects. So in 2004, we go down. And as I was saying, my vision was to really operate on some of these kids because some of them have severe burns, severe congenitals. So I wanted to change some of these little hands, but at the same time, I wanted to to teach therapists and surgeons. And we wanted to also have a conference, a bilingual conference where we could open it up to doctors and therapists. So at that time, there was a surgical component an educational component, and then there was a didactic component. What was exciting uh, that year was right after we finished the mission, the local PTs and OTs decided we want to do this. So they organized themselves. So now Guatemala has a hand therapy association. So we saw that there was quite a bit of effect from both the didactic and the small workshops that we did. 
but the surgical component was striking. We operated in a place called the Pediatrica Foundation, and they have contact with the entire country. And a lot of kids then get brought into Guatemala City under the umbrella of the Pediatric Foundation. And with our surgeons that we brought down, we screened and selected cases to be operated on. So that first year, on a Sunday, we screened over 120 children, of which we may have operated, almost forgot how many we did on that first year, 50 or 60. But it was such an aha moment for me that I said to myself, you know, I've got to do this again. Now, I had gone to missions before. I needed to kind of understand what kind of mission I wanted to lead. So I had gone to two or three small missions to develop the blueprint of how I wanted to do my mission. But I knew also that I couldn't do it alone. So after the completion of those of our first Vargas mission, I said to Dr. Cruz and Sharon, listen, guys, I think that we have to come back. You could see there's tremendous need and I can't do it alone. So Dr. Miguel Pirela Cruz said, I'm with you. Sharon said, I'm with you. So I came back and decided to start the Guatemala Healing Hands Foundation. We have since then had 13 missions. So any questions so far? So you've been doing this 13 missions. So how many therapists and physicians did you start with that first year? And now how many do you usually have going on the missions? Sure. So as you can see, initially we were 17 and our scope was only surgery, therapy, and educational component. But soon we were expanding. More and more people were coming down with us. And not only were were the surgeons coming down with us, sometimes it was the surgeon's kids, and sometimes it was the therapist's husband, and sometimes there were the kids. So we realized we had incredible power there, incredible people power. So along with my daughter, who helps me run the foundation, and a few of our people in Guatemala, we realized that this people power we had was powerful. And therefore, besides just a surgical component, we could really give back to the country. So we picked a village that was about two and a half hours from Guatemala City. So that is our project, Chichoy. So that extended our mission. And I wanted to read to you what our mission purpose was. But that expanded our mission to not only surgery, therapy, education, but also community outreach. We felt that we were committed to really help the people because here we are, we come down, we work on burns and we work on, you know, all these terrible things, all these kids, but we needed to also understand what are the source of all these problems. So if we could build better stoves and have latrines and if we could, you know, give back to some of the people, we may be making a difference in a larger scale. So the numbers of people that we brought down kept on increasing, increasing. In the last couple of years, we brought down over 40 people, sometimes even 50. So it is a huge task. You know, as I said, we have basically my, we have 
incredible team players that are so professional. At some point, we realized that what we had was such a reliable, professional group that just wanted to come back every year, which made it really difficult for us to add new people. So now at this point, we have, I would say by the time 2019 took place, we were operating on children from age one to 18. We had screened about 1,792 kids. We had operated on 673 kids. Over 3,500 people attended our meetings and we did over 1,300 splints. The wonderful thing about the foundation is because we would come back every year or every 15 months, we followed up on our cases. So when we operate on a two or three-year-old, as the years come back, we would see them again and do follow-up surgeries or follow-up therapy. And that's been extremely rewarding. And also when we leave, we leave the kids with proper care and home program, and we hook them up with people in Guatemala also. So the missions have really become fine-tuned machine where the screening begins and, you know, everybody knows what they have to do. With regards to the village of Chichoy, it's amazing the projects that we've done. We've done safe stoves and latrines. We established a clinic. We have a nurse. We donated thousands of avocado trees so that they could have food. We built the school. We give the kids their books. We support children to go to junior high because it's only sixth grade elementary. And some of our families have supported the kids beyond to technical schools like nurses, mechanics, teachers. So the foundation has really invested in our projects in Chichoy. During COVID, a lot of our projects had to change. Kids stayed home. Chichoy, for the longest time, did not have COVID, which we were very lucky, but partially because our team was supplying the food. And our contact in Chichoy made sure that every family, there's about 1,700 families in Chichoy, would get a large container of food and items to remain clean. So instead of doing a lot of the projects that we ordinarily would have done in Chichoy, we kind of pivoted to life-changing projects, which was really food. Now we're slowly getting back to normal. Now, all I can tell you is we are resuming missions. We did not have missions through 220, but they're going to be very, very different. We're going to take a very small team. We're going to probably have two different screening days, and it's going to be very different. And I think the first mission is going to be more testing the ground, but we need to get back. So when my daughter and I sent the notice to all our surgeons and a few of our therapists that we were coming down, they all said yes. So we have signed up 12 surgeons, anesthesia, a group of four or five therapists and nurses, they're ready to go. So we're very excited about the mission. There's a couple of ways that I've gone through problem solving. 
which projects to get into. And these are good take-home messages. And these are good, good messages for people that may be curious about, can I start a foundation or what kind of mission I should go to? So I'd like to talk about that. A mission takes over a year to plan. So my daughter and I begin first by bringing together the team that's going to go down with us. And now that we have such regulars, we know who it is. But it is very complicated because we need to meet country requirements. You need to have a sponsor. Everybody's got to show up with their notarized licenses. So it's not an easy process. And every country has their own requirements. And if you don't commit to those requirements, you can go down and all your supplies can be confiscated and not allowed to it. So there's tremendous, no matter what country you go, you've got to find out what are those country requirements. So for the full year, Mona and I make sure that we meet all those requirements. We also bring down most of our supplies and it can't be expired stuff. So throughout the year, we accumulate all the supplies, which includes medication and also includes a sterile equipment. Slowly, we've been getting more in Guatemala because just bringing all that stuff has become extremely costly. So we have a good year and we have people coming in from all over the world. We have a lot of we have a great Canadian group. We have a surgeon from from Spain and we have people from all around the country. So everybody lands in Guatemala within two to three days. The first two to three days, we all meet and we go to this wonderful place in Antigua. It's really an opportunity for the group to connect, to get to know each other. And it's beautiful there. And it's also an opportunity to learn about coffee or learn about different nonprofits and really what the country is, is like. It also allows for all of our supplies to arrive. So after two days in Antigua bonding, the group then moves on. A few of them go and have another fun day, but the core of us go back into the city. And on that Thursday, when we go back into the city, we prepare for the Friday conference. We have organized bilingual conference attended by several hundred people. And they are therapists, they're surgeons, they're students. And it is a combination of the Guatemalans presenting and our team presenting. Throughout the year, I have worked a program. Sometimes it's tendon, sometimes it's nerve, sometimes it's burn. So we've organized a program throughout the year. And it takes place on that day, that Friday. It's really exciting because we get to also hear about the therapists and the surgeons and their approach to dealing with some of those problems. So that's the conference. The following day is Saturday. And that Saturday, we all go as a team to Chichoy to the village. And it is a beautiful blending of the real indigenous community that just so connects with us, you know, because we've done so much for them and they do so much for us. I mean, it's been a extraordinary marriage of cultures and we eat together, we celebrate together. And that day is really significant. And many times we've done many projects. We've 
you know, besides all the projects I spoke earlier, sometimes we build the garden and we build the kitchen. So there's always a group project that we do in the town of Chichoy. So then that Saturday, the following day, that's screening. That's the day we get to see all the kids. Now, these kids have been pre-screened in many times by me and by the association that knows that we are the upper extremity group. We operate in a place called the Moore Moore Center. It's part of the Shalom Foundation in Tennessee. And they have this wonderful facility, which is a home that hosts mission groups. And they host two or three mission groups a month. We are the upper extremity mission group. So throughout the year, they pull together kids with burns, syndactyly, polydactyly, poorly managed fractures, you name it all types of cases from the age of 18 to zero to one. So that screening day works like like a machine because it has to be done fast. By the end of that day, we know what's happening day one, day two, day three, day four, and day five. And which surgeon, three ORs in what OR. And it is this, it's like from nothing, You've created this surgical week. What's beautiful to see is these are the best of the best. You know, these are top of the line, top expertise of this talent. And they love working with each other. They learn with each other. So what happens in that OR, what happens in the therapy room is this incredible exchange of ideas and everybody lifts every, everyone up. And right after the cases, the therapist, there's a team of therapists working on the post-surgical. But in addition to that, there is a team of therapists that goes into different hospitals. Now with COVID, we won't be able to do, but we always rotate. So one day a team of therapists stays in the hospital. The other day they'll go to one hospital, they'll go to another hospital. We then also give small workshops in the hotel. We have programmed all this multi-layered experience that includes a lot of teaching to the local therapists who now have their hand therapy association and they're part of the World Federation of Hand Therapists. So they've really learned quite a bit. And then many of the kids, when we leave, we leave them connected. So after the screening begins those five days of surgery, five days of visits to different hospitals, ultimately finishing on Friday where we pack supplies to go. Now, basically every evening we get together. We get together to eat as a group. We get together to discuss the day activity, or what we're doing tomorrow. There's incredible communication going on. We also keep very strict records. Data has to be carefully kept. That includes the patient's information, what was done, what surgeon was done. We have triplicate forms that have to go into the, into the hospital, that one that comes to us, and so on. So it is extremely complex but we've done it now so many times that it just all happens. It's probably the hardest work we ever do, but the work that we just adore. And people just keep coming back for more. <laughs> yeah. 
So does that give you a sense of what that mission experience is? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So I know that you mentioned that you gather supplies and take them with you. How do you, I guess, obtain those supplies? Are they donated? Are they purchased through your foundation? And what what supplies, I know you mentioned medicine and some of the sterile supplies. What are some of the other supplies that you take down with you? Yeah. Well, we've been really lucky that practically all hand therapy supply has been donated. So that really has been great. And even if it's scraps, because the scraps are really helpful for us when we do our teaching workshops. Now, the surgical supplies have to get purchased. And because we need medicine and surgical supplies that aren't expired, and they can't be expired for a year after when the mission is complete. So you really have because if it remains there, they need to make sure it can be used. We do store some things in Guatemala, but now that it's been two years since we were there, 2019, all that stuff is not, not good. We rely a lot with some of our docs and nurses that are really good at reaching out, ordering for us. We ultimately pay for it. So the foundation really needs to raise funds for all the surgical supplies. Yeah. That was going to be my next question. So your funding, how do you raise the funds to be able to purchase these items? Yeah. Well, you know, everybody that comes down is asked to do some fundraising. Okay. So that's really important. And, you know, we have kind full pages, we have, you name it. We send different campaigns like Giving Tuesday just happened. Christmas holiday is happening. We're always looking for donations. And it's really important because basically everything goes for the supply. You know, my daughter and I run it. So we really don't have major, we don't have any administrative except for paying for our accountant and lawyer. Basically, everything that goes down gets used for that. And not only what we bring down, but let's say a a child in Guatemala needs an x-ray or needs an MRI, we pay for it. We pay for the entire care of that child during their surgery. When we first used to go down, it was maybe about $225 per each case. Now it's more like five, $600. So every day, so if we operate 60 kids, just operating on that kid will cost us whatever they need. Good thing that there's a Ronald McDonald home in Guatemala so that the kids can remain there. And that's going to be very important during COVID. So yeah, we we are a nonprofit organization. So our donations are tax deductible. You know, we encourage people to donate because they benefit from it in addition to see where their money really goes. Mm-hmm. So I know you said if you plan to do a mission, you need to have a sponsor. So how does that work? Like, say, for example, if I wanted to go as a therapist, I would need a sponsor, correct? Okay, let me explain what the sponsor is. What it means is Guatemala Healing Hands is sponsored by an organization in Guatemala. They are our hosts. So the volunteers don't have to worry about that. Okay. (laughs) Okay. We have a relationship with this sponsor this host and they are the ones that work with us to get all these legal things done and try to bring in all the supplies through customs it is 
major. I can imagine, right? So, you know, having them facilitates the process. The reason why we get so much interest from people is we are a vehicle that's been established already. So therapists just jump along, surgeons just jump along. They just have to bring us their requirements and say, I'm signing up, you know, I'm going to do some fundraising, but they don't have to worry too much. We even do hotel reservations for them. They have to do the airline. So in many ways, we have made the process fairly easy for our volunteers so that they can come with us. But we do request that they do some fundraising for us in return. Okay. So it's not necessarily sponsor. It's more of the fundraising part. Is there a minimum that you require or? Because I would think it would take some time to be able to raise some funds if you're interested in going. Yes, absolutely. That's why for now we already have our team that's going to go down November of 2022. So somewhere around January, my daughter will send all the applications and they'll people that are coming will know about what are the fundraising requirements. So our volunteers will have 10 months to do some fundraising. And it really becomes, it's easier than you think. Once you tell them what you're doing, we really get really people that never thought that they could fundraise can fundraise very effectively. So I wanted to chat with you for a moment about a process by which I go about selecting my projects. Because you might have a therapist that says, well, I come from this country. How do I begin? And or, you know, I want to join this other mission. How do I begin? So there's all different levels of volunteering. I would advise to first go on a you know, to go on something that you feel compatible with. You've got to be familiar. You've got to be comfortable with the language, with the culture. You know, don't try to do something. Don't try to do too much. It's got to be a really good match between the volunteer and the mission group where they're going. If it's not a good match, it's not going to work. We've had volunteers that aren't great matches for us. And then we've had remarkable matches. You know, for us, we need a volunteer that is willing to step up, that is a real good team player, that if they have to lead, they can, but they they have to be able to help and get their hands dirty. And really, you want a volunteer that really is in it for the full experience. So, you know, if you if the volunteer doesn't like to do this or that, it's better to really explore carefully what that mission is and try to make a good match. And I would recommend whoever wants to do this in their country or have a great idea to first go on several missions so that you can develop your own plan on what you want to do. And you've got to be very specific as to what you want to do. Do I want to do education? Do I want to do therapy? Do I want to bring a team and operate? So you really have to plan each one of these very, very, very carefully. And a very important component is you've got to have somebody in the country that is going to join you along. You just can't be the American trying to come do good and not be part of the team there. It doesn't work. So best advice is integrate yourself with the therapists down there or with the surgeons down there 
whoever you can, but don't do it alone. Do it as part of a team. And you have to be extremely aware of cultural differences. It's very delicate and you want to be welcome back and not have any conflicts that could really affect yourself, the kids, and those people that you're interacting with. I know that you said you have your team for 2022, but if someone were interested in getting involved with your organization and maybe volunteering in 2023, hard to think that far in advance, how would they go about getting involved or or even finding out more information on how they could volunteer? Yes. Yeah. Well, we have Instagram. We have Facebook. If you just Google guatemalahands.org, we have beautiful films, beautiful films of just interviews with the doctors and the nurse and, you know, the therapists and the village. It's just beautiful. It tells the story. So just send us, you can also email me. Or if you go on our website, just send us an email and my daughter will send me the email and then I can address it. We kind of split the responsibilities of (laughs) teamwork. We really do like help and we do like volunteers. Many of our volunteers that we have now have reached out. I mean, we didn't know them. So they just reached out and the more interested they are, the more relentless they are at really wanting to be part of that the better it is. I also have a lot of therapists that send me supplies. That's really been great. So there's many ways. And hopefully by 2023, things will be a little easier. I really feel 2022 is just going to be like starting from scratch again. And there's, you know, it's a lot of structure that we have to follow through. So going back to the supplies, if people did want to donate supplies. You said you do take those donations. Do they also just kind of reach out to you? Do you have a list of supplies that you specifically ask for that you would like donated or how could people go about getting those to you as well? Because I'm sure that therapists would love to, to contribute that way if they aren't able to go on a trip. Yes, that's great. And you know, some of these supplies are also tax deductible. So the best thing to do is to send me an email take some photos of what it is. I have recently moved from New York where I practiced for over 40 years. I'm in LA now. Oh, that's a big move. (laughs) But we do have a storage room in New York with all our supplies. And I could also receive some supplies here. Yeah. Anything from whatever you have in a hand therapy office, you know, we really appreciate splinting material, prefabs. It should be in decent shape. That's how we've managed all these 13 missions that we've had without really purchasing any hand therapy. In terms of the medical supplies, the best thing you could do is donate some money so that we can buy these medical supplies. And it's really important. It's really important. And things are going to go up, as we know. So we're just very cautiously approaching this. I don't think we'll be able to operate 60, but even if we operate 30 kids, it'll be I have really learned a lot about facing different projects and how to go about deciding, you know, what to do in Guatemala. And I found that there is this kind of thinking, and some of you may want to read up on it. It has proven to be very helpful for me. It's called integrative thinking. And what integrative thinking does 
is it's broken up into four categories. The first one is something called megacognition. And what that metacognition and what the metacognition is, is an understanding of yourselves, meaning I grew up in Nashville or I grew up in this country and I grew up with all this privilege or I grew up thinking that the world should be a certain way. So this metacognition is really understanding who you are because it is once you know who you are, you'll be able to best adjust to what you're going to see there and not be confused or too biased. So just be really prepared to understand who you are before you go there and what are your limits, what you're not prepared to do. The second part of this integrative thinking is to have huge amount of empathy and really try to put yourself into the shoes of these people. That even though the American thinks they know best, it may not be the right thing for them. So whenever you go about planning a program, you got to listen to them. You've got to say, okay, I think that they need X, Y, or Z. But if they're telling you that what they prefer is education or they prefer something else, you got to listen to them. Because only they, when we were trying to do food programs for them, we could decide we want to give them X, Y, or Z to eat. But if it's not part of their culture, they're not going to. So there's got to, you need to have a huge amount of empathy with where you're going to be and really understand the people that you're going to be working with. Then you can have your options and say, okay, traditionally I could solve a problem this way, A, I could solve it B, I could solve it C or D. There's different ways that you can solve your problem about food or shelter. There's different programs. So what you have to do is really analyze what each one of those possibilities are. And there's every plan has something good. Every plan has something bad. So after you analyze all these different possibilities of saying, okay, I want to give them avocado trees, or I want to give them this and that, examine each one of your projects And then you've got to come up with a creative solution. So you could take a little bit from A and a little bit from B and a little bit from C and D, and then come up with a creative solution that may, and it's not a consensus. Okay, I'm going to do A because it's easier. I'm going to do C because it's easier. You've got to come up with a creative solution that might incorporate all your different options of what you could do in in a village. And it really is a a way that you can listen to your team when you're discussing how to approach a problem. So-and-so says this is the best way. So-and-so says this is the best way and this way and this way. Kind of listen to all these different modules and then try to pull out of those modules the best of each and make sure that it is compatible with the place that you're working on. So it's really not, really, it's a process before you you select what you're going to do. So I'm not sure it makes any sense to you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really good advice. Yeah, I know I had listened to a speaker several years ago at an ASHT conference and on doing missions. And it's very different, I guess, from what people expect it to be, you know, you're in some pretty rough places sometimes and, you know, the conditions may not be optimal. And even as far as 
the types of food that you would eat when you're there, maybe not might not be something that would be appetizing to you, but for that culture, that is very much their culture. And if you do not, you would offend them, you know, if you did not join in with their culture and partake in the type of food that they were eating. And that was just one thing, you know, that this woman that spoke was just it just gave some insight as to, yes, it's great. You want to do a mission, you want to volunteer, but you got to remember, you know, those things that you just discussed, you know, empathy and just understanding that culture that you're going to. Yeah. And listening to them and then listening to your team, because each one of your team members is an incredible rich source of information in their own metacognition, their own world. And by listening to everyone, you could really come up with better solutions. I really feel that our foundation has done well because we are really a family and we really count on each other. Once we are down in Guatemala, we have a plan and we go through our plan and there's no time to be problem solving there. But before a mission, you really want to listen to your team players, get feedback and really come up with a a really good creative plan. Well, I think we covered everything we wanted to cover this evening, Lynn. I think our listeners will have a good idea of just what's expected. And, you know, definitely anybody out there want to volunteer, send the information to Lynn or even to make donations in any way that you can reach out to the the website or to Lynn and just try to help you out. It has been an amazing experience for me. I've met incredible people, people that are truly very kind and very generous. And it really has been wonderful for my family also, and just to watch not only the difference that it makes to the people in Guatemala, but our our team who's brought down their kids and now their kids are surgeons too. And it really creates so much, there's so much benefit to those in Guatemala and to our team and very long lasting friendships that are just really very valuable. Well, we appreciate everything that you do and Thanks again for joining us. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.